Today our teaching text comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6, verses 39 to 40. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. So every week we, we stand in response to God's word as, a, as an inflection point in our gathering to remind ourselves that the word actually can, if we're willing, elicit a response in our lives. Um, but as we start our, this, this teaching, I just want to start with a little trip down memory lane. And depending on how old you are, this may be a longer trip or a shorter trip, but a trip nevertheless. So uh, let me just ask this question. Uh, how many of you have ever been asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Just, ra- just raise your hand if you've ever been asked that. Okay, now keep your hand raised if you have ever asked, if you have ever, hold on, what am I saying here? If, if you've ever been asked that question, yes, your hand is raised now. Have, have, what am I saying here, folks? Keep your hand raised if you have ever asked that question to another person. Okay, now that we got past that, the oh, you can put your hands down. The overwhelming majority of us have either been asked or asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? So do any of you remember? Okay, you don't have to tell us right now, maybe later. Um, did any of you do what you wanted to do? There's like like two people. Okay, so the, the, the rarity of that. So I, I for one, I, um, I wanted to be a professional hockey player. I actually had no idea that vocational ministry was a thing that people did. Um, that wasn't on the horizon of possibilities in my life. I wanted to be a hockey player, uh, and that just didn't work out. So uh, the, the, this is not the point, though, like what you did with the response to the question. The point is the question itself. And so in route to that question, what do you want to be when you grow up, I just want to remind us of where we've been kind of where we're headed. So where we've been is we've been in this series titled The Good Way, and now we're entering into the second half of this. And this is a series just to remind us of where we're hoping to go and the values that will anchor us in that. And so where we're hoping to go is to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of the city. It is that simple, to to take up the life and the lifestyle of Jesus anchored in three values of presence, formation, and renewal. And last week we talked about presence, of presence to God and presence to one another. If you want, you can listen to the podcast. But this week we turn to this second value that we're hopeful to anchor ourselves in, and it is the value of formation. And so with that in mind, just return to that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And on the surface, this can seem like a a pretty benign question, and I think it is a loaded question. And then here's why. This question, what do you want to be when you grow up, it places our doing on par with our being. And just hear this again with a little bit of emphasis. What do you want to be when you grow up? And what's compelling about this question is, at its best, it invites us to look ahead and evaluate a whole slew of things from our interests to our curiosities to our position in the world. And then we can contribute, you know, how how can we bring all of who we are to bear for the good of our families and our communities? There's some beauty to be had in this question. And still, to my mind, the unintended consequence of this question is that it places our doing on par with our being. What do you want to be? when you grow up. In turn, our value can be derived or drawn from what we do more than who or how we are in the world. 
maybe you're thinking, okay, Kyle, this is a lot uh, of information on one question. What's the big deal? Well, let me just, I don't know, tell you a little story. So the other day, I'm talking with our eldest boy, Griffin, who's just started preschool, and I, I find that I get to ask all these questions that I perhaps was asked when I was starting school, but it's, they're pretty normal questions. It's, you know, what did you do today? Met with silence. What did you enjoy? Met with silence. What was going on? T tell me about what, just typical questions like this. And the thing that seems to come forth is um, commentary on trucks in the classroom. Our house is like strewn. It could just be like, oh, you decorate with trucks. Yes, we do. Um, and so this is, this is how the conversation goes. Construction workers. And Griffin was pretending to be a construction worker. And then after a bit of a pause, he kind of shuts the conversation down. And he says, I like construction. <laughs> to which I respond, yeah, buddy, you have a great mind for seeing new possibilities for how things to come, come together. You would make a great architect. Were we talking about architecture? No. Does Griffin know what architecture is? No. I then proceeded to give him like this short little rant on what I think architecture is. I have no idea what architecture actually is. Um, so he probably still has no idea what this thing is. But wh why did I do that? Well, I'm sure there's like a whole slew of reasons, but my guess is that because architecture, from the stories that are shaping my imagination, it has a higher cultural evaluation than a construction worker. And like, bless you if you work construction. I'm just like, this is a gift. Like, these are the things that we often don't see but are helping us to live our daily lives. See, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that at that moment, passive though it was, I laid the foundation to continue this type of evaluation of ranking one profession, what you do over and against another. And in turn, that evaluation that continued was placing our doing on par with our being, if not saying that our doing is more significant than our being. And this was kind of a sobering realization as I was prepping for this teaching because over time what, what happens is that questions like this and commentary like this, it shapes who we are. It shapes our imaginations and in turn it forms our lives for good and for ill. And most of us would simply just call this nurture. Kind of the net effect of your family of origin, your friends, your environment and culture, etc. Just nurture. And some of the things in, in involved with nurture are in our control. They're within the domain of our control, but a lot of them are not. That's nature. You have the, the biological package that is like, I don't know, like somebody called it like a, a sack of skin. We're more than just like a sack of skin. There's like, that's your nature, but very little of that do you have control over. You're born with things. And for most of us, nature and nurture would kind of end that conversation. It's going to turn you out the way that you'll be, you can control very little of it. Or, or you can say, maybe you could ask some better questions along the way, but in a culture, where so often we're evaluated by what we do, the stakes are high. Just consider the introductory question that you ask of a person if you're traveling around or if you're on the airplane. What is that question? You sit down next to a stranger, they turn to you and they ask you, what do you do? And that is the, the, like the bridge between you and a conversation with this person. You're doing in the world. What do you do for a living? See, we've not strayed very far. The stakes are high. So, and, and we see this, especially when people are no longer able to quote-unquote do. You know, it's telling that the group most prone to self-harm are, are older men. The, the group most likely to commit suicide are men 85 years and older. 80% of all deaths by suicide in the U.S. 
are by middle-aged people, men and women, but disproportionately men among that group. And just think about it, this is just my speculation. There's no like data to back this. But if the bulk of your value is attached to your ability to provide and work and contribute or produce, and you do this for 30, 40, 50, maybe six decades, and let's say you do it really, really well, and then you are no longer able to provide, work, contribute, or produce in the same way that generates the type of value that you did before because, I don't know, you're laid off or you retire or something else, your body gives way. The question that naturally emerges is, if you cannot do, then what is your value? And have you thought about this recently? <laughs> like how your value relates to your doing and your being? This is actually one of the questions that we get to bring to our faith in Jesus. You see, sadly, for far too many, the conclusion is that their later life did not have value sufficient to sustain their life. And what may sound benign, what do you want to do when you grow up, is far from it because this is the power of formation. What our culture calls nurture and environment, we talk about, and hopefully more and more we will talk about as formation. The, the insider jargon is spiritual formation, but it's formation nevertheless. And the idea is pretty simple. It goes like this. like We are right now becoming who we will be. You've heard me say this before. Character is destiny. That's not my own saying. It's just something we step into. You are now, right now becoming who you will be in the future. That your routines, the company you keep, the media you consume from Instagram to the Bible, all of those things have forming potential. And so when we talk about formation, we do so with the awareness that we don't come to the Jesus story with a blank canvas. Instead, we come to Jesus with our quirky personalities, with our dysfunctional families of origins, our odd experiences. We come with baggage. Our canvas is covered in stuff. And therefore, for us, Formation is about being reformed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus. Just say this with me. Out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus. One more time. Out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus. This is at the heart of formation, about reformation in the way of Jesus. And in this way of imagining our life with Jesus, it's as though he's this artist. He's got the hair for it, right? So Jesus is this artist who's interested in making an already compelling and beautiful work of art even more so. He wants to take what seems disconnected and bring something beautiful forth through your life. And so with all of that in mind, like the capacity of our environment to shape us into a certain type of person and Jesus' interest in forming you, um, I just want to us to consider our teaching text again. In this short parable, Jesus says this in Luke 6. He says, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? And now, to be sure, this is not a commentary on blind versus sighted folks. As soon as I was like looking at this parable, I'm like, oh gosh, this is relevant for our community. So be clear, this is not a commentary on blind versus sighted folks. Instead, this is like a low-key dig at the Pharisees, who are the, the scribes and the teachers of the law of Jesus' day. Later on, Jesus will call the Pharisees blind guides. So this is a low-key dig at them. So can the blind lead the blind? No. Will they not both fall into a pit? Yes. Verse 40. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. 
So this is not going to be like your classic Bible church uh, expository teaching where we dive deep into the language and the verbs and the grammar and stuff. We'll do a little bit of that. But this is more or less going to be a commentary on verse 40, but um, because language is beautiful, just a couple of notes here on verse 40. Uh, first, uh, the word translated student is this word in Greek called mathetes. Try that on, mathetes. Yeah, there you are, you Greek scholars, you. So uh, mathetes has it, this idea of discipleship. You'll see it translated that. In our vernacular, think about it as an apprentice. So, in other words, the apprentice is not above the master. And second, this word uh, teacher, this is, you might have a little note in your translation, this is rabbi. So this is about a disciple and a rabbi, a, an apprentice and a master. And the whole point of apprenticeship to any given rabbi, and in our case, Jesus of Nazareth, it is to become fully and completely like your teacher over the course of a lifetime. In turn, you could render verse 40 something like this. This is kind of like my mashup version of verse 40. An apprentice doesn't lecture the master. Instead, the point is to be holy like your rabbi, your master, in the whole of life. Holy like your rabbi in the whole of life. And immediately this creates like some tension for us because as um, modern Western individualists, we don't really want to have masters. Um, there's something, I don't know, like, did any of you get involved in, in the punk scene when you were coming up? Like, just a couple, yeah. So, like, there's, like, there's, like, some raw energy to that. There's, it's motivated and fueled by anger. It captivated my imagination. There was something about it. My, you know, my dad was in the military, so anything I could basically, get, like, flip the bird to him, it was, like, punk rock was the thing. And it just did something for me. I was like, yes, this is it. When I encounter this, the master-apprentice dynamic, it like chafes against a lot of the way the world has shaped me. So that's one element that there's tension, but that's not the main point here. That's something to overcome. That could be a hard pill to swallow. But what's relevant for us in the, in the language of formation is, is that none of us are like Jesus wholly and fully. I'm sorry to break it to you. None of us, not a single one of us, are like Jesus in this manner, fully and completely like Jesus. And this is actually the gift of this teaching, of this teaching text. It's that we are not like Jesus. Because in that tension, we find the gift that is Jesus with us, to bear with us through that. This is why we want to anchor ourselves in formation as like a core value, is because, just check this out. This is how the New Testament talks about this. This is the Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians. He says this, and we all, talking to a community that is just, really jacked up if you have read the, the new testament many of the communities these are specific moments that paul is responding to in his like cohort and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory you see formation is about being reformed our canvas is full like just chock full of all of this stuff and jesus is saying i want to enter into that and shape something beautiful to come forth from it that's the word transformed into his image out of the way of the world and into the way of jesus this is what jesus calls training in verse 40 so you may be prone to anger you may be absent-minded you may be non-committal and a little dismissive that's just like my, uh, I don't know, my besetting sins and such, gluttony to be included. Um, but still, like you, you may be prone to all of these things. And still, when we come to Jesus with trust in hand, he holds out a vision for life greater than one predicated 
on your merit or your capacity to earn and produce. And this may sound like, yeah, these are like the fundamentals. This is the gospel. That we actually get to come to Jesus with all of our stuff and he meets us with grace, like this gift of new life. It's greater than nature. It's greater than nurture. Jesus holds out what the scriptures simply and beautifully call grace. And, and this is what I want us to help, like, I want to help us cling to today, is that our formation in the way of Jesus is motivated and sustained by grace. Our formation in the way of Jesus, it is motivated and sustained by grace. It is grace to you, grace, all the prepositions, for you, with you, in you, around you, through you. This is what grace does. It motivates and sustains your formation in the way of Jesus because it refines and then in turn over time it defines who you are you become a person of grace and so that we might like get this deep into our imaginations I want to map this out as best as I can uh, for what it looks like for us to be trained by grace so I have some charts I have a poem and then I, I want to end with the word of pastoral encouragement how's that sound some charts a poem and some encouragement this sounds great to me. I had so much fun doing this evening, so we're going to have a blast here, folks. Okay, so let, let's map this out. Th think about that question we started with for a little bit of review. What do you want to be when you grow up? Now think about when we are typically asked this question. We're asked this question when we are small humans. It's like me riding in the car with Griffin, asking him about these things. And this question can engender a way of seeing the world that places our doing on par with our being. And again, th this is what many would simply call nurture. But what does this look like? Like if you, were to, if you were to visually capture this dynamic, what would that look like? Well, this is where you turn to your uh, web-enabled smartphone thingy and you click on the little thing that says nurture phase one. This is my attempt. You, you can find this at thegatewaychurch.com Sunday liturgy. So this is nurture. There are circumstances and there are conflict in your sphere of life. And, and in this framework, your life is simply this, circumstances and conflict. I know that is um, like really reduced, but if I were to give you two words, it's circumstances and conflict. Conflict can be circumstances, but I wanted to give you some sort of like delineation between the two. And if doing is on par with being, then you better do something significant if you want to be someone significant or if you want to maximize your value. So you just have to ask, okay, if my life is circumstances and conflict, how do I do this? Can you do this with motivation? Sure, like, like there are people running a marathon. You can be motivated by a goal to run a marathon, but will that turn you into a runner? Maybe. So motivation might get you going. What about some hacks? People, like, I, I talked to one pastor recently, he talked about giving gospel hacks, and I was like, well, that's interesting. That sounds terrible. Like, that sounds, sounds like you have to import something foreign, and I don't, I don't know. So it just sounded stupid to me. But so hacks, is that going to turn us into the type of people we want? Well, maybe, but you still have to do them. You have to employ those things. So is it luck? Probably a little bit. But, but how do you maximize your value when your doing is on par with your being? Well, you deal with life. How do you do that? You apply discipline. So you have circumstances and conflict and then you apply some discipline. There's one leadership coach, he's like, I don't know, um, if you know the name Jocko, then that might mean something to you. If you don't, just let that by bypass your brain. But he says, discipline eats motivation for breakfast. Little tangent, I've been really curious why like my peers and guys younger than me are really interested in Joe Rogan. So this might be like, oh no, what's Kyle gonna say? I've, so I've been listening to the Joe Rogan experience, it's fascinating. 
But I, I think I have a general idea of why there is some sort of fascination with Joe Rogan and Ilk. It's like, they're basically saying, make your bed, eat breakfast, get a job. What they're saying is apply some discipline to the conflict in your life. They're saying you can augment your nature and your nurture and that you might actually get something out of that. So let's just say you do apply some discipline to your conflict. What do you get? This is nurture uh, phase two. Check this out. In the overlap, as you bring your discipline to bear on your circumstances, some sort of virtue comes out. Perseverance could be one. And that will hopefully increase. So, so this is, to my mind, what people think about as a paradigm for formation or change. As you increasingly bring your circumstances under control by exerting your will and implementing habits and protocols and life hacks, as you increasingly bring those things under control, you will increase your virtue or value in life. This is DIY formation. This is not the way of Jesus. DIY formation can elicit virtue. It can actually bring some perseverance into your life, but it is just not going to last. And here's why I think, because this is not a new phenomenon. So let me drop some history and a poem on you. In 1895, are you listening for the history? This is the best part. Okay. In 1895, Sir Leander Starr Jameson, that's a strong name, uh, a British commander in what is now known as South Africa, he tried to incite an insurrection in Johannesburg. And as history records it, the hope of, uh, of Jameson was that the insurrection would give cause for the British troops to go into Johannesburg, kind of keep the peace, and then they could secure, quote-unquote, the land, but what they would also secure are the Dutch-owned gold mines. So they're like, if we go in there, we shake things up a bit, we can secure the land and in turn secure the gold mines. But um, Jameson's raid, as, as it was later called, it didn't go well. Um, so there were people that were sent in to cut the telegraph lines. If you're like, telegraph, what's that? Google it later. Um, they, were, they were sent in to cut the telegraph lines, and they did all of them but one. Instead, they cut the fence. So word got out, and they show up to do this raid, and there's troops there. And they basically get shut down. They get shut down hard. And people get arrested. Long story short, they get sent back to London. Some are sentenced to death, and others are put in prison. What happens, though, is there's this kind of geopolitical stuff that happens. That is, the, you know, like Germany chimes in and says, hey, good job over there, like withholding the British. And so there's this interesting thing that happens in the British media. They lionize Jameson. They actually make him kind of like a folk hero. And in response to Jameson's raid, he becomes this kind of person of virtue. He owns his part. Yeah, we did not do that well. We wish we would have you know, captured that and gotten the gold. And what happens is the British people love him. So, a person by the name of Rudyard Kipling hears about Jameson. He writes this poem a year later, and then in 1910 this is published. You may know this. This is the poem If. So hear this. This is, this is the poem. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired of waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, 
If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if men, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. If you can apply discipline to your circumstances and conflict, there is virtue and value to be had. And I'll be honest, the first time that I heard this poem read, I like brought tears to my eyes, which is where your tears come out normally. <laughs> In part because the words are beautiful, but that's not really what moved me. You see, part of my story is the departure and absence of my own father. And so when these words, which to me sound like a father speaking life and hope and calling out something in their son, like it uh, like touches like a salve on this acute ache of my soul. And don't get me wrong, but there is something beautiful here. There's something beautiful about stealing your nerve in the face of adversity. There's something beautiful about holding on when there's really nothing left in you. There's something beautiful about keeping your composure. If you can, a virtuous life is on offer, Kipling says. But what happens when your, your will gives way in the face of adversity? Like, what happens not if, but when you can't hold on or when you can no longer steal your nerves? Are you no longer a man, whatever that is supposed to mean? Are you no longer like a person of value? See, there is a type of virtue to be gained by applying discipline to conflict. And regardless of what you think of like the Petersons and Rogans of the world, um, they're on to something when they talk about applying discipline to conflict, but they just don't have the full picture in my opinion. Composure, patience, and diligence, they are gifts to be given, but they're just not enough. If we're to be formed out of the way of the world and into the way of Jesus, there has to be something more than our capacity and our human striving, more than our ingenuity. To my mind, and what the scriptures would say is that we actually need grace. We need this invader of God's grace to break in to the place, the hardness of our hearts to soften us to become people of love. See, graceless discipline, it falls prey to the same unintended consequence of our initial question. It places our being on par with our doing. And just as your value evaporates when you are unable to do, so too does virtue when your discipleship or your discipline wanes. And see, the, the, the New Testament has something to say about this. The New Testament unpacks this idea. This is in Romans 12 too, where, where Paul is turning in this letter to the Romans. And he says this. This is fascinating. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. There's our word by the renewing of your mind. Now we would talk about this as neuroplasticity, the capacity of your mind to change. But what is the mechanism by which that change occurs? Well, we would say it's grace. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, what God's up to in the world, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform, but be transformed. This idea is a word picture. It's like a die and press. It is quite literally to be pressed into a particular image. And what Paul says um, is resist. Tom Wright, a New Testament scholar, he translates that last, that, that first little bit of do not be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. I love this because what this says to me is that grace is actually more punk rock than punk rock. Like grace is the great disruptor and the values and virtues of this present age, they are passively and actively shaping us into type of people. They're shaping us into the type of people who rank others according to their vocation. And we just do it without... I honestly don't think I would notice that if I wasn't teaching this teaching text and having that conversation with Griffin. I would probably continue doing it. But now I have to do something about this stuff. I have to see the people who are working in the world in particular ways. See, the, the values of this present age are trying to shape us into particular, particular type of people who, in some sense contribute to larger economic systems or generate entertaining content or affirm particular political ideology there is a formation taking place so you just have to ask what's shaping me a, a, a good indicator of what's shaping you is what you give your time to and i'm not trying to vilify like i think the social like we need to learn how to like look to the social medias and look to those platforms to say what what is a redemptive capacity of these things but just give notice to that what do you give your time to and to this, the wisdom of God implores us, pursue another way. In the middle of the life you're living, there is an opportunity to live that life with the grace of Jesus, to live through that, to allow grace to like incubate you into a person of love. I love really how Tom Wright kind of brings this into full form. He says, being trained, thinking about our passage, being trained to think Christianly, is the necessary antidote to what will otherwise happen squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age see grace in this way of seeing the world it is the great disruptor and grace at its core like i said it is like this punk rock thing because it meets us in the middle of our mess and then it empowers us beyond the capacity of our will Grace trains us to discern, to make sense of how God is at work in our lives and the world around us. And so, um, for your benefit, here's a picture. If you go and you, you look, um, grace literally pushes in on your conflict and on your discipline. And in the midst of that, there is formation to be had. Formation into what? Into the image of Christ, into Imago Christi. So the goal in the way of Jesus is to be formed into the image of Jesus. And that actually takes the conflict. That takes the discipline and it takes the grace. The difficulty of grace is that it actually takes some effort to receive. And there's a distinction here, and this is how Dallas Wheeler talks about it. He, he talks about it, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. So there can be a great amount of, there's, in God's economy, there is space for your effort to receive. And sometimes, if you want to know how do I do that, well, that's next week when we talk about renewal. So come back, we'll be right here. See, but when I talk about grace, I, I want this to kind of get into your mind. There's a person who is shaped by his circumstances, and 
has a beautiful way of talking about this, and you've likely heard it, but I want you to hear it again. This is the distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. So here, Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer has this to say. This is not what we're talking about. So I'm going to start with the negative and finish with the positive. This is not the grace we're talking about. Cheap grace is this. The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus the Messiah, living and incarnate. So that is not what we're talking about. Instead, what we're talking about is this. This is costly grace as we come to a close. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for those for whose sake a man or woman will pluck out the eye which causes them to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves their nets to follow Jesus. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which we must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus the Messiah. It is costly because it costs one their life, and it is grace because it gives the only true life. To be, tr- to be trained by grace is the process by which the Christian becomes a disciple or an apprentice. And it's here in the grace of Jesus that we are trained to be fully like Jesus, where our doing is always outpaced by grace. See, formation is about being reformed, not by the exertion of our will, although that is a part of it, but primarily by grace. And so what do you want to be? There might be a better question for us, folks. Like, how do you want to be? Like, to, to move increasingly toward the one who fully embodied love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Like, how do we move toward Jesus to be formed like this? Well, there's one way that we can do that practically. And that is to respond. And so I invite you... Um, to get from your neighbor the bread and the cup if you've not, either to your right or to your left. And let us just respond. This is a place of remembrance where we remember that that the grace of God in Jesus has met us and it actually has the capacity to shape us right now. Like regardless of what your, I don't know, the spiritual landscape of your heart is, Jesus is interested in shaping you into the type of woman or man who would be known as a person of love. And if you think, oh, I don't know, I probably got this down pat, there's more to be had than you could ever imagine if you lean in, if you are willing to receive. And so my invitation to you is simply this. Open yourself to the grandiosity of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And I just think, what do you, like, as we close, before we respond to the word, so just to stand with me, um, just imagine what it would be like if this little group of people received the grace of God and then lived from that as a place of power in the world that we live in. I'm I'm not saying, like, choose asceticism. Maybe God's calling you to that. All I'm saying is open to the grace on offer in Jesus and let it mess with you. Like, let the grace of Jesus allow you to extend grace to the person who you actually have disdain for. 
allow the grace of Jesus to like meet you and then to, in the place of shame, hear that you are the recipient of grace. Did you know that you are actually worthy of God's care? Like, God in Christ has looked towards you and said, I love you, I've moved towards you. This is the message of the gospel. And that you are worthy to receive this. And that God's love is so intense that it would pursue us even here, even now. And so church, let, let me just say, if there was ever a time that you could respond, why not now? Why not have this be a turning point and in the inflection point in your heart? You're like, Sunday, Sunday, September 18th, 2022, as I was taking communion, the grace of God was refreshed in my heart. I was looking out over the city that I live in and it was like this fresh filling of the Spirit. Why not here? Why not now?